I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. You know, I, I realized later that saying that you met someone in Bogota <laughs> kind of sets up this sort of strange premise, right? <laughs> you know, An expectation of glamour and adventure. Well, glamour, adventure, the danger, you know, smuggling petrol across the border, yeah, narco-terrorism, yeah, yeah. but there was a little bit of that. There was pork belly. There was there pork was, belly. You know. There was salsa dancing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, no express kidnappings, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm sitting Let's having save a, that for next. This is, this is a much more genteel atmosphere. We're um, hanging out in Fitzrovia, London, and I'm, I'm sitting with Molly Flatt, uh, who is many things, as I could see from your uh, resume, but she's also an author. Uh, she has an upcoming book, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. She's the associate editor of Future Book. She's the editor of... Digital editor of Phoenix. Digital editor of Phoenix. Uh, associate editor of The Memo Right. Well. She's a very busy person. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, it's good to see you, Molly. It's lovely to see you. Uh, you know, it, 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 feels, it feels appropriate talking about books being in England, I think, because uh, this is sort of the last bastion of reading, probably, in the world. Oh, wow. Don't you think? I, I feel like people, the English oh, read... Maybe it's the weather, but it, I feel like people read here more than other cultures. I, th- I think we have, you know, we have a great literary tradition. I think, you know, what's really interesting actually is um, the growth of kind of literature and translation and the hunger that we're getting for that, you know, as you get a more globalised world, you want to hear more diverse voices. Um, well, so, you know, well, people here actually get excited when they do a new translation of like Ulysses or like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and emerging voices. I mean, I think it's a difficult time, you know, because there's been actually just um, today there's been a lot kicking off on Twitter and a lot of uh, a lot of upset about the closure of libraries. So you know, that's uh, that's a massive deal, and a lot of incredible authors like Philip Pullman have kind of been really putting their weight behind um, this as an issue because I think it's one of those examples where we're in danger of kind of short-termism and thinking that cutting costs with things like that. Well, I'd almost say that what, what's the purpose of a library these days now that everything's digital, but I, I, I saw some numbers that actually for the last two years in the UK, e-book sales are falling and physical book sales are rising. Yeah, I mean, those, those figures... Is that, are they, is that true? Very, very broadly, but those figures need much deeper interrogation. Right. Um, it's not quite as simple a picture as that. But I think, you know, with things like libraries who it hits hardest are inner city kids and poor kids because you know it's easy to kind of think that we're all part of this glorious digital revolution right. we're all kind of and we all we all we, we all have like with our devices and amazon prime exactly but it's actually the kids who you know can't afford devices or who are kind of just disenfranchised from the whole world of books don't see it as part of what they do you know libraries have been a gateway actually for so many of our kind of hero authors today um, and you know especially again ones that have more diverse voices than your kind of you know middle class white middle aged author sitting in West London. Well so. we you know I, I grew up in a very sort of 
middle class family, but yeah. we still had a weekly pilgrimage to the library, and it yeah. was we were quite dysfunctional. Um, yeah. uh, it was just my mother really growing up, but we all go yeah. to the library. We'd all get ten books each. Yeah. We'd then go to Pizza Hut, yeah. and we'd sit in silence all reading our books. Oh, I mean, that sounds like heaven. <laughs> that would be my ideal Christmas. But seriously, I think I had exactly the same thing. Where I think in libraries, there's an element of control for kids. It's not your parents, you know, if your parents do have books at home and you're lucky enough, you know, as we both did to grow up in houses where that's the case, you know, but still, it's so important to feel, I think, to spark a passion for reading, to feel like it's a bit of an act of rebellion, that you go out there and find the authors, the forms, the genres, the stories that speak directly to you, you know, the right. sense of discovery as a kid of, oh, this author knows what I'm going through and no one else understands. Well, this, this discovery thing is interesting because discovering a book in a library can be often a very different experience to discovering a book on a bestseller list that's a Absolutely. curated algorithmic feed. I, I feel there are all these books that I loved as a child that just aren't visible on Amazon. Yeah, they were so random. Like, some of the stuff I read was really shit. Yeah. As a child, you know, or I would pursue it to nada. But that's so important to find your your kind of, you know, pulpy horror stories, to find your and you know, librarians are amazing curators. They you know, librarians I know have very eclectic tastes, they're very smart, and they give that opportunity to graze like a whole different range of literature and, and you know, stuff that couldn't be called literature. Whereas yeah, it's a very different thing if you're being forced to spend a small amount of money in a bookshop and get one book, yeah. or you know, trapped into the filter bubble of, if you like, of that, algorithmic like recommendations. Yeah. It does. It does sort of raise the question, which is, does there need to be a future of the book? I, I mean, last I don't know. It seems like as soon as we entered the digital revolution, people started talking about, you know, CD-ROMs and interactive yeah, books yeah, yeah. and multimedia, but the printed word has been persistent or even the the form of the novel yeah. hasn't really changed that much even despite the attempts of the postmodernists to screw it up oh totally and i think you know as with all of these things i think you know new new forms don't make an older robust form obsolete i think what's interesting is that the conversation around innovation in the book world i think has moved slightly away or certainly kind of diversified away from the format about, yeah storytelling right. forms Having said that, you know, I'm the winner of, uh, we do uh, a conference every year called Future Book 2017 as part of my work at the bookseller. And um, as part of that, we do a kind of book tech pitch off of publishing startups. And the winner of that this year was a startup called Unread, whose um, recent app last seen online is mobile storytelling, that elusive holy grail. It kind of uses social media posts um, and kind of chat um, and WhatsApp to tell a story. The idea is that you unlock a girl's phone so you get her messages. Right. Really smart, really great mystery story. Is it compelling? Like, it's is it... really compelling. It's yeah. really sucks you in it because it works with all those addictive properties that devices and chat mess chat services and social media services have. But in some ways, that's that's almost more like the future of radio plays. Yeah, it's because I mean, it feels like war, form. like H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds playing on radio. Yeah, it's a really hybrid form, and I think you know, in in a way, that's a little bit of a, a kind of a, a unicorn at the moment. You know, what people are more focusing on um, in terms of publishing innovation, what I'm seeing more investment going into is more the kind of slightly more the boring tech, you know, the under the radar stuff around distribution, around data collection, around metadata, around discoverability, around all of these kind of things, where the kind of splashy, 
this is the new form of the book stuff has quietened down a bit. Um, yeah. And you know, personally, I've had a really interesting journey where at the start of this year, having had years where I read a lot of e-books, um, partly because of traveling, you know, when, when I was traveling a lot, like when we met in Bogota, um, I just took my, actually I used a Kindle app on an iPad, um, I took it everywhere because I needed to have loads of books, you know, I'd be traveling all over the place, I couldn't carry books. But at the beginning of this year, I really decided to go back to print books and read oh. no e-books. Partly because I now have a young daughter and I want her to see me reading books because right. I realized that I would read print books with her. Because otherwise, you know, you on Facebook or you reading a book is indistinguishable. Exactly, exactly. So that was mainly the reason. But um, also, you know, there's been all this research coming out about how differently you relate to print as opposed to screen, how it's supposed to change the way um, you empathize with and remember books and things. Really? Like, what, um, is, what yeah. is, does it activate our more tactile, so, mnemonic yeah, senses exactly. or something? Exactly. So I can kind of get the memory thing because there's, there's many, many more visual cues to do with a physical book. You know, they look much more different individually right. um, and they feel different individually to them all being on the same kind of platform essentially yeah. and always being digital but yes it's supposed to it's supposed to increase your empathy and things like that that's interesting I mean the, the, the big I mean I unfortunately I've, I've become a big e-reader just just because so I, it is an amazing technology yeah but, but I've lost the sense of the the scale of the book you know when I'm when I'm reading a 500 page tome versus a 50 page tome I sort of know what I'm getting into going in and I can flip back and forth and forward yeah, yeah. and I can feel like I can master the book whereas with an ebook you, you you're kind of very stuck on a linear journey yeah ironically enough absolutely and there's something for me about ownership I think I have such an intimate relationship with my books if they're distanced from me in a you don't feel like you own your ebook I don't feel I really own it in all senses of that word um, and it's Actually, totally blown me away the difference it's made going back to ebooks. Sorry, to print books this year. Um, I have read totally differently, and for a kind of committed lifelong bookworm, realizing that what I'd been missing for a few years was quite shocking. It was yeah. quite weird. Um, and you know, I can't, I'm not particularly articulate about it because it's also emotion, emotion driven. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sticking with print books. Certainly for the Aside from the format, yeah. there's sort of some new expectations that new authors or even existing authors invest significantly in their platform, and and, and it's their sort brand. of their brand. brand. I mean, and, and this is sort of bizarrely enough, when you go to a publisher, they almost want to look at your ability to be able to publish it without them. For sure. You know, before yeah. giving you a deal. Absolutely. You know, I feel um, I suppose. I'm so aware about how lucky I am of being on the right side of that. As you know, now I suppose you could call me a journalist, although I still feel I do journalism slightly on false pretenses. Um, but as someone who, you know, I worked in a word of mouth marketing social media agency for 10 years, I grew up kind of at the vanguard of that classic, you know, Gen Y geek. And I just got jobs because I knew how to do stuff with computers or had a kind of digital fluency that people higher up in the company didn't necessarily. So, you know, I suppose you could say I built a brand and a platform simply by being active on lots of social media sites, by starting to write for free everywhere and kind of building that into a bit of a career and ending up, you know, talking on stages with, with guys like you about digital transformation. I then kind of moved away from all that and towards, you know, writing about that. Um, I suppose because 
you know, it's a bit like the, the, the seven-year itch or the ten-year itch. I'd grown up with it. I felt a need to distance myself. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the lucky outcome is that I am one of these authors who had a platform before, um, before I kind of was looking for a publisher for my book and that I do that quite naturally. Um, it's a really interesting and really tough one because personally, I've always thought maybe I'll self-publish maybe I'll traditionally publish, I don't really mind, you know, it's actually, I just started writing a book as a way to, I mean, it's what I've always wanted to do, but finally committed, because I felt like my brain needed it, I felt like I was ready, I felt like I had something burning to say, um, and I always went in with the knowledge that I was going to have to hustle to get it done, whether that involved a traditional well, publisher or not, it, it, it but seems, that's part of my expectation, yeah. my whole career has been like that, it would be very different for someone whose career hadn't been like that. Well, it seems almost nostalgic that you know the work can speak for itself which is sort of how uh which is sort of how creating all kind of art was but yeah. you know when you look at these new generation of authors like you know, i think of hugh hugh hoey you know the yeah, yeah. science fiction writer i mean this guy's a data geek as much as anything else yeah. i mean he's totally he's a genuinely good author but he's also a genius at gaming the system yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's analyzed the mechanics and it's sort of odd that part of the consequences of this digital revolution is to be a creator yeah. or a thinker today, you need to master the mechanics of attention as much as the, the mechanics of storytelling. Absolutely, and I think, you know, some of that's actually in the themes of my book. And I think I'm, I have a real struggle about part of me wants to kind of go man up. If you want to make a living out of being a writer, um, or if you kind of want to earn the right to, to, to learn your craft and earn enough space and time to kind of have a team to edit, to grow with what you do, to earn a readership. Yeah, I'm like, you have to man up. You have to work with the way the world works nowadays. You have to become, you know, an author. the concept of what an author is and does has always changed over the centuries. Part of me feels anxious about the voices that are not getting heard, about the personalities that don't fit that type, who could have the most incredible, wise, beautiful, challenging, diverse stories. Well, well, well theoretically, algorithms should make those kind of voices more transparent to the people that should hear them, but yeah. it doesn't ever seem to play out that way. No, and, there's, and you know, I think it's so funny with the digital world, isn't it? We move from, we seem to move from kind of peaks of utopic excitement to disillusionment. So, you know, there's the whole kind of Wattpad phenomenon and the idea that, you know, actually it's really well suited if you're an introvert or not super comfortable being out there and building a personal brand. You can just, you know, start blogging a story or self-publish or, you know, find an audience that you never would have been able to before. But of course, then as that grows, there's a hell of a lot of noise and the yeah. need for curators, reviewers, editors. Because you're competing publishers. now against fake news and neo-Nazis. Exactly, and... comes back in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's sometimes I just think this is the way it's always been and always will be. You know, artists have always had that struggle between how commercial are you, how much do you market yourself, how much do you work on a brand, and how much do you sit in your bunker, your turret, or your kind of freezing little room alone. Yeah, no, even the people that we now sort of almost um, revere in a sort of a fetishistic sense, like yeah. Shakespeare and Dickens, I mean, 
you know, Dickens was writing for the masses. He was. Uh, he would have been. He would have been a data nerd. He would have known his algorithms. He would have gamed Amazon. He was like J.J. Abrams of his time, yeah, right? Like absolutely. he. He was creating serialized entertainment, and yeah. Shakespeare was competing with the Bear Pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. They. Um. It was not some rarefied kind of literary circle they worked in. So, quite those kind of multimedia entertainment contexts have always been there. So, you know, you've spent quite a bit of time talking to publishers and looking at what they're planning. So, I mean, if you project out in 10 years, assuming that we still have this, you know, integrity of the format where some people are using physical, some people are using digital, what's changing in the back end? You know, with all of this innovation that's going on, what are they going to get better at? So, data's a huge thing. And I think what publishers are realizing is that they have very little direct-to-consumer, in this case, reader, data. So if you look at someone like a Netflix who, you know, does so brilliantly out of understanding what their audience wants, being able to mine down into every bit of data about how they're watching, what they're watching, when they're watching, where they're watching, what they want next, which is guiding how they're commissioning content, how they're experimenting with interactive storytelling, how they're doing all of this kind of stuff. Publishers don't historically have access to anything like that with their readers. You know, um, bookstores might have a little bit more of it. You know, that's why Amazon has been able to have such a monopoly because Amazon has a lot more of that sort of data and protects that sort of data. What would they do with that data if they had more of it, publishers? Uh, Find smarter ways to market, find smarter ways to commission. Um, You know, I think they'd just use that to know their readers better, to be quicker, to be more responsive. I think to try more experiments. I think if you've got the data to back it up, it's much easier to sell to your team that you can do a lot, lots of small kind of testing water experiments to innovate, which is the way innovation works best, rather than kind of trying to craft this one big, okay, this is the answer for the next two years project. I mean, you're you're right. I mean, I I had on this show a a little while back, Andy Harris, who... um, who you know produced the crown for Netflix, mm. and you know he told the story on the show, show, but you know he he pitched to all the other networks, and they yeah. were all like, oh look, I don't know, we don't know about the audience, and he walked into Netflix, and he realised that they'd already decided to do it, yeah, yeah, because they'd already seen the data, yeah, and they knew it would work, yeah. and there was just this was more of a social call, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you know, one thing um, we touched on this earlier, you know, before the recording started, one thing that I love about publishing, and I think that I hope publishing holds on to and makes the most of is the essential human element in publishing that comes in at all stages of the process. You know, publishers at the end of the day kind of are like hedge fund managers or something. They're very used to making lots of bets. Right. They make distributed portfolio. Bets, lots of risk, lots of portfolio. But so much of that is based on human instinct. You know, we yeah. have seen some startups and some platforms attempting to use data to make those kind of calls. So to analyze you know bestsellers and try and well, I was going to say because the hedge funds now are looking at you also yeah. using machine learning to, for sure, to make bets for sure to make bets but I'm still a massive believer in not only editorial instinct um, but you know the relationships between authors editors publishers at the end of the day authors are people and they are you know, often difficult, unwieldy, irritating, you know, creative people who take time for ideas to brew, who have to go through this long creative process. You know, the very uh, Silicon Valley friendly model of the four hour work week and of shipping instantly. And yes, there's a lot that authors can learn from this to, you know, get off your ass and just do things and not be too precious. 
but actually also to produce beautiful and meaningful and subtle and different works of art. There's a lot of unwieldy human process that goes into that, which I think would be horrendous if that got superseded by the data. And automated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, I think publishers sometimes feel under an incredible amount of pressure that they are not these lean startups. They are not these kind of automatable. And yes, there's a lot that can be do, done, done um, in terms of simple processes, in terms of content creation um, for marketing and, you know, platforms and websites and things like that. But actually, the creative process around creating great stories is by necessity kind of a bit of a painful one and a bit of a waste, wasteful, you know, in, in inverted commas one. Um, and that's great. That's the way it should be because that's an intrinsic part of the way human creativity works. And we don't want to lose that and we want to protect that. And that's why I love publishers. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think they're ever going to be dead. These are professionals who know how to work with other people to nudge them towards great works well and that's or just fun reads and that's a, that's an amazing thing you know well speaking of great works of art um you have a book coming out <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the charmed life of alex moore that's it yeah, yeah. um which is how, how would you describe it is it oh gosh mike is, i've is, got is to try it, and remember my is, it, my, is it harry potter account. meets eastenders I, do you know, I think my agent sold it to my publisher as Bridget Jones meets The Matrix, which I love and kind of hate. Which, which does beg the question, which parts of Bridget Jones yeah, are which parts of The Matrix? Yeah, Matrix, quite. So um, I suppose it, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very much kind of commercial fiction, I think. when It took me quite a while to write this book, partly because I always thought I was going to be this incredibly literary writer. And you know, right. most of my friends always joke, oh Wally, you'll read a book, I won't be able to understand it. Right. You know, I love words, I love vocabulary. I've, I've always loved, um, yeah, loved experiments in form and you know, quite... Um, you, you, wanted to be, you wanted to be more like Ezra Pound rather than yeah. T.S. Eliot, right? But then, I, it took me a while to realise I'm totally not that writer at all. I might sometimes be that reader, but actually, as a writer, I love plot. I love, you know, I love the kind of book that makes people miss their buses. I do that all the time. You know, I look up, I see that the bus is coming in three minutes' time. I'm like, oh, I'll read a couple of pages, and you know, five minutes later, there's a bus in twenty minutes' time. And, well, just you know, just just promise me this book doesn't involve vampires or bare-chested wolverines or anything no, like that. No, there right? is no. It's, What's really interesting is what makes it difficult for me to describe the book and kind of the publisher to categorise the book. We're describing it as commercial fiction with a speculative twist. But that is as meaningless as you like, right? It falls into, I think that there's a growing um, anti-genre of literature that kind of dips into and steals from various genres without being 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 kind of slavish to them yeah. so i suppose there is a fantasy element to my book you can start reading it as a straight contemporary kind of urban thriller there's a um a woman who uh who has kind of spent uh you know she's 31 years old and she's spent her life so far um feeling like she's just failing to fulfill her potential she's starting to sleepwalk through her life you know everyone else seems to be having these amazing lives on social media and she's just not and then everything starts going right, and she founds this uh, well-being startup in Old Street. Um, everything's going brilliantly. So you kind of read it, and you know, weird things start to happen. She gets mugged. She uh, gets interviewed by this really odd BBC journalist, who she finds out isn't quite who he seems. 
but you know, it's kind of going along. And then she goes to Orkney. She's invited to go to um and, to and where is academic, that? But, oh, north of Scotland. Ah. Kind of in between Scotland and um, Scandinavia, essentially. Right. So it's this incredible place, and 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 I uh, I came across it and was just amazed that there aren't more books set here because it is like Tolkien designed it. It's huh. this stunning, treeless, um, Neolithic, uh, incredible uh, archipelago. And she goes there, and basically, then a layer gets peeled away from you know the world as we know, and we realise that there's. There's some stuff going on quite literally beneath the surface oh, fantastic. Um, that we don't realise to do with consciousness and the way human stories, the stories of our lives, kind of exist. But, but the prevailing theme here is is one of positivity and optimism, and I and I think this is one of the interesting things about the genre you're writing in is that this, uh, you know, and you mentioned this before, there's sort of this new trend towards wanting to read things that actually make us happy. God forbid. It almost feels like a betrayal. Yeah. A betrayal of the universe at the moment. What, what do they call it? Up, uplit? Uplit, like... yeah, yeah. People talked a bit. And actually, it was interesting. I um, At uh, the Future Book Conference, one of our keynotes was from a brilliant woman called Dr. Eliza Philby, who talks about um, different generations. Obviously, I'm Gen Y. She was saying, Gen Z, the, the, the um, kids coming out now, are hyper-realists which is partly a reaction against their parents' in, in optimism. Sense, are they cynical or are they just no, pragmatic? Just pragmatic, realist, because we as a generation, we're the big optimists. The, right. the, the kind of, you know, social media utopia, everything's amazing. But we do like to be optimistic. And I am a dyed-in-the-wool optimist. But I do think also it's really <laughs> important to write positive futures. You know, there's a lot of dystopia about, there's a lot, and that doesn't mean being naive. That just means if we don't imagine what good looks like, how on earth are we ever gonna try and get that? It's very hard to imagine a positive future without it becoming camp. You yeah. know, I mean, you have 2001 and Blade Runner, and then you have Barbarella. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah, and I think, so it's like, you know, my book, I mean, it isn't a sci-fi novel, it's set now, but I think um, one thing that that was important in it for me was to look at what's amazing and look at kind of the technology of the human being that we already have yeah. and actually knowing more about nature and knowing more about humanity is just as important as pushing science in terms of silicon and in terms of you know chips and in terms of what we can do with computing you know um i think you know if we did more research into how creatures of the deep think and this is getting very general lady now. But you know, how they think and survive. There's so much we could learn to apply to our futures and to our everyday lives. We get so obsessed with such a narrow view of innovation yeah. and technology. And I, human beings are still the most amazing. You've been reading you've been reading that octopus book, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I knew I love how to, it. Brilliant. I, I've been driving my wife insane because <laughs> I refuse to read octopus now because yeah, yeah. you know, now that I've sort of you know That's smarter than us. Well I sort of I sort of accepted that maybe they were delicious and then they were, I thought maybe they're horrific like H.P. Lovecraft, you know. Yeah, yeah. But now I've kind of got to the point where I kind of feel that maybe they're friendly and so yeah. I can't eat them anymore. It's a bit, um, a bit like Douglas Adams, you know. Yeah. They're, they're like, the, like dolphins, right? They're right. going to take over the future. But um, yeah, so for me there's definitely a piece about embodied human beings and this, this book kind of moves from the tech world of Old Street to, you know, Alex the protagonist really realising how real human consciousness is, how, how we can't get away from the fact that we're these fleshy creatures connected to the natural world. And actually, you know, I'm not really a fan or proponent of the singularity. I think it's quite a naive perspective about so much of intelligence, of will, of free will. 
so much of it is physical and spatial and connected to our senses and I think um, I think that's a beautiful thing I think that's a positive thing yeah no you're, you're right like a lot of the stories we tell each other about the future say more about our present states of anxiety Absolutely. and our anxiety uh, about being mortal partly about and, and I feel the singularity is some kind of bizarre Technosexual fantasy that rich geeks have about totally. you know merging with with the computer. The fact that they don't have to deal with their bodies, they don't have to deal yeah. with the complexity of hormones, of emotions, of you know all of this stuff. But it's actually it's like not only do you have to deal with it, you have to find a way to celebrate it and see that it goes to the absolute core of what we are. We are not brains in kind of fleshy robot machines. No, we're humans. Well, it's it's hard to. It's hard to imagine a human consciousness would arise independent of our bodies. Exactly. Because so much of our drives, our motivations, the way we frame, you know, what's of value yeah. is driven by our mortality and our Absolutely. and our kind of biology, quite frankly. Oh, oh, and that you could separate it from kind of the planet, essentially. You know, it's it's you know, we are getting very pantheistic here. No, no, but but you're right, because if it did emerge separately, it would be like an octopus intelligence. Yeah, right? we, like, or we would be, exactly, we would be kind of floating out there in the ether, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super fascinated <laughs> by these different views of what technology means, what innovation means, and how we move between um, getting very excited. And I absolutely do this. I love shiny objects. I love technology. I love, and to me, that all becomes associated with the urban. Then there's another movement towards the wild, towards nature, towards the embodied, um, towards the senses. And it's sort I of the whole Thoreau sort of yeah, exactly. you know, going out to the wilderness and becoming exactly, one. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So the book for me became a way for, um, yeah, to explore those themes, hopefully without in any way obviously exploring them and just having an adventure story that's kind yes. of fun and funny and makes you miss your bus. <laughs> yeah, well, once again, being an artist, you, you want the reviewer to come to those conclusions. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> rather than being told didactically that oh my God, this is what you need to get out of it. I, I think I remember talking to a, a writing friend years ago. He said, obviously, the characters don't really matter. They're just a carrier for the issues. And there are people who can pull that off and who can write incredible books like that Usually I am those totally not one of them yeah. I am not one of them I'm no. so I just have to fall in love with characters I spent my life you know I'm amazed that I've ended up with someone because I spent my life just in love with a variety of very unsuitable imaginary people um, and you know reality I thought would never live up um, so yeah I think you know you have to have characters that people just adore even if they love to hate them um, because you know that's that's the privilege of fiction is again humans right you get to play with humans well, molly it's been lovely seeing you um, <laughs> now that i'm in london i'm sure we'll have to do coffee again soon yes please you've been listening to between worlds for more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.